So let's continue with great Jewish photographs. Um, there was a uh, a great Talmud Chacham, very famous Talmud Chacham. His name was Reb Yitzchak Zev Halevi Salavechik. He was the rub in the city of Brisk in the 1900s, mid-1900s. And he... Um, he was known as the Briska Rav. His father before him was the Rav in Brisk. That was Reb Chaim Salvechik. And then um, his grandfather, the Beis Halevi, was also the Rav in Brisk. So there was three generations of rabbis in Brisk. So before, they were all known as the Briska Rav, but today, colloquially, if you talk about the Briska Rav, they're talking about Reb Yitzchak Zev Salvechik. And he uh, was a, a huge, huge Talmud Chacham. He wrote a Sefer on the Rambam, called Chidushe Maran Riz Halevi, a classic in the yeshiva world. And he, uh, he's like the gold standard of Lambdas. So uh, somebody that grew up, he was born in the city of Brisk in 1916 and lived there for the rest of his life, was interviewed in his old age. And they asked him, of course, like, tell us a little bit about the Briskarov. So he said... I clearly remember the tremendous respect and honor everyone in the city afforded the Rav. I especially remember that when he walked in the street, whoever was sitting on a bench used to stand up in respect and awe. That was the way uh, people used to respect me, that even if you saw the rabbi like walking by, everyone would stand up and um, follow and, and, and to give him covet. Uh, there's a, a well-known picture of not only the Briskarov, but also he was flanked by other big Tamil Chacham, including the famed Dayan, the judge of the city of Brisk. His name was Rav Simcha Zalag Rieger, and another big Tamil Chacham by the name of Isser Yehuda Malin. And if you look at the picture carefully, you'll see that as they're walking through the streets of Brisk, and there two of them are holding umbrellas, actually, not because it was raining but because it was, I think, because it was sunny, because you don't see anyone else really, it doesn't seem like the ground is wet, and you don't see anyone else holding umbrellas, um, they were followed by regular lay people, what seemed to be like the simple folk of town, followed them, and I'll show you the picture in a minute, and that's you know, another sign, besides for that eyewitness hand, we're able to see how much Kavad Atayra uh, people gave, that they saw the great rabbis walking in the street together, they would actually walk behind them as a sign of respect. There's another important element of this picture, and that was pointed out by the Mashkiach Ruchani of Beis Shraga of Mansi. His name was Rav Mordechai Schwab, who was a brother of Rav Shimon Schwab, who we uh, give a vad in once a week here at nights. Um, so he once delivered a Musr Shmozer of Schwab, and he mentioned this photograph as an example of how Torah giants displayed such nobility and sanctity in their every motion, and how much we can learn by observing their ways. Now, I didn't really speak it out because Arts Girl made me edit it out, but I'll tell you the inside baseball of what Ramadachai Schwab actually said about this picture. There is a Gemara that says that the reason why Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Nasi, was called HaKadosh, they used to call him Rabbeinu HaKadosh, our holy master. Why was he called holy? What was especially holy? All the Tanaim were holy. So why is he considered very holy? So it says that he never put his hand 
beneath his belt, meaning his waistline, he never put his hands beneath. He didn't want to, you know, as like a, as a gather against, you know, coming into contact with any, anything beneath the waist. So they, he would always keep his hands like this. And many G'daylem followed this as well. Even in, in very recent times, people try to be makbid to, you know, chashavah people try to be makbid to always walk around like this. They don't want to keep their hands uh, in anywhere near their waistline. And uh, there's a story that's told about the, the stipler Gain, who he was always makbid, he always walked around like this. And when he died, uh, and they, the Chever Kaddish was like having his, readying his body for the Kvura, so they put his they put his hand arms by his side and then they turned around you know to get something ready for the preparation of his body for the kvura and like when they turned back around to him his hands had popped back up like this such was the you know the I guess the uh, I don't know the instinct nature of the stipler's body was that even after he was dead he was still always like elastically you know keeping the halachas of this. So Ramadachai Schwab points out that if you look in this picture, you see, besides for what I pointed out about the layman walking behind them, you also see how all of these great rabbis are keeping their hands very much above their waist. And this is the picture. That's one uh, photograph that we're going to discuss today. Uh, let's find another one. Okay, this is a, a very beautiful photograph. Rabbin Abba Sha'ol was one of the great uh, G'daylem of the Sardic Torah world. This is what he looked like. You can see... He was a, uh, a tremendous guy, a tremendous Hamachachim. He used to learn the Chavrusa of the Ravad Yosef. So I think in order to be a Chavrusa of the Ravad Yosef, you probably have to know how to learn a drop. And I'm saying that very uh, tongue-in-cheek. He was, obviously, Ravad Yosef knew everything. And yet, there's a beautiful story that's told about how they once made a seum together. And Ravad Yosef was actually the one being Messiah. And Rabbin Sina Bashal was there also. And, and when he was giving a speech, he said that it's true that I know what's on the page, but Rabbin Sina Bashal knows what's underneath the page. Meaning he was a, a tremendous Lamdan. He understood the Gemara inside and out, not just encyclopedically or superficially, not that Chasachal Rabbi Yosef didn't know it deeply as well, but he was known to be a tremendous. Lamdin. He was able to drill to the core of what the Gemara was, was trying to say. He wrote uh, a set of called Arletzion um, on both Gemara, he has Shail Suchubas, he also has a Sefer on Musar, and he was a prized student of the legendary Ezra Atiyah in Yeshivat Parat Yosef, and ultimately he became himself the Rosh Yeshiva of Parat Yosef. 
Now, this is a, a picture that's taken of Rabbi Sien Abashaol walking alongside Rabbi Ezra Atiyo, his Rebbe. And there's a, a beautiful story that's told that when Rabbi Sien was 20 years old, so Rabbi Ezra Atiyo chose him to be tested by Rabbi Eliezer Silver. Rabbi Eliezer Silver was one of the greatest minds of the generation. He's an Ashkenazic gadol. He was the head of the Agudas Harabanim of America and Canada. He was in charge of the, um, I think we spoke about him, right? With the Tapet, very good, excellent. Uh, he was in charge of the Vat Hatzalah after the war. He did a lot of uh, rescue work to bring home, uh, to, to save a lot of the Jews that were in DP camps. And he came to visit Eretz Yisrael once, and he, he offered to test, you know, the Yeshiva Bacharim to see, like, what they know. So Ezra Atiyah said, okay, I have the best student for you. You can test them all you want. And uh, he gave him Rabin Sien Abashol. And there was a brilliant uh, rab... Uh, I'm sorry. There was... T- he brought along with him, Blazer Silva brought along with him a very rich philanthropist, a big belt tzedakah from America, and who agreed that if he would find a student that would be able to answer any question correctly, he would give a tremendous amount of money to Parat Yosef Yeshiva. Laser Silver asked Rabin Sinabashal a question in a very obscure uh, seder of Shas called Taras. And when Rabin Sinabashal gave his answer, Laser Silver remarked to him in astonishment that he had asked the same question to Rav Meir Simcha of Devins, the Meshach Chachma, and he had answered him the same question. Forty years earlier, he asked the God Ladar the same question, the same, same answer was given by Rav Sien Abashol as he had heard from Rav Meir Simcha. And needless to say, Rav Sien secured the donation from the philanthropist, but more importantly, the highest regard of Rabbi Silver. This is a picture... Let's do one more. Now, this is very, very interesting. Anyone ever hear of Prime Minister Menachem Begin? Begin was uh, one of the Israeli prime ministers. He was a very unusual prime minister. Uh, He was, I don't know exactly what his level of religious observance was, but he was very, he, he was very emotionally Jewish. Uh, you know, he grew up in, uh, in Europe. Uh, he spoke a fluent Yiddish. His parents were religious, I believe. And he, uh, you know, so he always had like a very special feeling for Yiddishkeit. He wasn't like a secularist or any, anything. So he came, when he became prime minister, the new prime minister in 1977, so he visited a few G'daylem in America. He visited Rabbi Yashaber Salvechik, I believe he went to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he also went to the home, to the apartment of Ramesha Feinstein in the Lower East Side. Ramesha lived in a very simple apartment. You'll see the picture. 
how there is a, uh, it's, people have pointed this out, and there's like a painting of Ramesha himself. I think a woman like painted a picture of Ramesha, and she gave it to Ramesha, so he hung it up in his, in his, uh, in his dining room. It's hanging right behind him. I think he was afraid she would visit, and he didn't want to insult her by not having it, so he put it up. I'm sure it wasn't like obvious to do that. And included in this meeting, besides for Meisha and Menachem Begin, was Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rabbi Yitzhak Hutner, two great Gedalim as well, and then there was other people like Yehuda Avner. Anyone ever hear of Yehuda Avner? There's a very famous book that he wrote called The Prime Ministers, because he was, I think they made it into a movie, or they were going to make it into a movie. He was, uh, he was an assistant to many prime ministers in Israel, so he wrote a a very well-received uh, book, very thick book, that was very popular maybe 10 years ago, entitled The Prime Ministers. He was he seated, seated at the table also, and then some other people I don't know. And Mr. Begin, out of genuine respect for the G'daylem, wore a big yarmulke in honor of the occasion, and he spoke in Yiddish instead of Hebrew. Normally you'd expect the Prime Minister of Israel to speak in Hebrew when, you're, when he's speaking to rabbis, but in deference to the G'dayim that he was meeting with, who all were Yiddish speakers primarily, so he spoke in Yiddish to them. And afterwards, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky said that with Begin, one felt he was talking with a Yiddish mensch. He's talking like, you know, he felt like a certain camaraderie with him. He felt that he was, you know, he was sympathetic to Klal Yisrael and to a Jewish cause and, and to Yiddishkeit. And, um, and so he felt comfortable with Menachem Begin. A cute part of the story is that before the Prime Minister arrived, you can imagine that the Israeli Secret Service agents were combing the apartment to make sure there were no bombs hidden anywhere or any, you know, anyone ambushing him. There's like a you know, very, very heavy security wherever he went. And so they did like a sweep of the apartment of any explosives uh, that might be somewhere in it. Rav Hutner, who was very witty, he was always very sharp, he remarked to one of the Secret Service agents, if you are searching for explosives, you will find them only in the writings of our host. And what he meant was that Rav Meisha's chidushim on, uh, on Gemara and on, in Halacha were so earth-shattering that they were explosive sometimes. So he was joking. I don't know if the Secret Service agent necessarily caught what he was saying, but it was uh, something that made the rounds um, that, uh, you know, that that's really where they exploded. But it was a very successful meeting by all accounts, and Menachem Begin was very, uh, he was an excellent prime minister, and uh, he was, of course, the one that signed uh, the Camp David peace accords with uh, the president of Egypt, a very risky move on both of their parts. I mean, Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, ended up getting assassinated as a result of it, but it was, uh, he basically gave back the entire Sinai, which is neighboring Egypt. That's a big piece of real estate to give back. But as a result of that, there was probably about 40 years of, of peace on the southern border of Israel. There wasn't any war. It wasn't, it's not always like so easy between them. They're not always best friends, but at least there was no war for the next, since then, since that peace accord had been signed until today, it was very calm at the southern border. So in a way, even though it was a controversial move to give back the whole Sinai, which they took in battle, Israel, but it was, uh, this was a, a risky 
it seemed to have paid off. This is the picture. See the picture of Emmanuel? one in the book. That doesn't mean to say that it's the end of the book, but it's a beautiful picture that I think you'll appreciate. This is, I did like a double, like a full spread of the picture. Paid a lot of money to get the rights to use this from the photographer. This is the CMA Shas um, in MetLife Stadium. It was in 2012. Not the last CMA Shas, that was a freezing cold one. This was in the middle of the summer. And I remember it very vividly. My father was very, very sick at the time. I had purchased a ticket for him to sit next to me and my son. But um, it was pouring the whole day. Like, but not regular pouring, like completely drenching rain, like coming down in buckets. And so my father was very sick at the time. He didn't think it was a smart idea to go and risk it and sit in the rain the whole night. And he, he was obviously very correct about that. Um, and everybody was like, I don't know if you, you know, like Charlie Brown, that cartoon, he always like is looking out the window and like it's pouring out and he had his baseball glove on and he wanted to go and play ball, but he's like depressed. So that's how like I was, and I'm sure 90,000 other people were like, they were looking forward to this great event. We finished in Yeshiva. We did Dafyaimi for those seven and a half years and excited that it was going to be a beautiful night. And the weather was like dreary and awful. But we headed out there anyway. My wife and my daughters came also. Um, and it was pouring, pouring, pouring. Um, and uh, what happened it was a cute story before. It's not so cute. At the time, it wasn't cute. Now, looking back on it, it was pretty cute. My son was meeting. It was in the middle of, the ca- of summer, so my, one of my sons was in camp. So he was going to meet us at the... They had like uh, vans coming in from camps. So he was on one of the vans. We were excited to see him. We hadn't seen him in a while. And um, we were going to meet him by one of the gates. And for some reason, I didn't... I don't know if I was using Waze or not. Probably, I don't know if, there, if Waze existed at the time. But I got messed up, and I, I was missing the exit. Like, I was, like, the exit was coming up, but it was like five rows you know, to my right on a super highway. And, but I didn't want to, like, once you miss the exit, you have to go, it's going to be, like, another hour or so. Like, and I was, like, really not interested. I wanted to get there. I wanted to see my son. He was waiting for me. He kept calling. So what I did was I basically scooted over five highway, five highway lanes on a busy intersection, on a busy, uh, on a busy uh, highway. And I was, like, mom, like, my car was, like, sort of, like, moving sideways, like, gliding sideways to get to the exit. And, uh, and Baruch Hashem, we made it there alive, which is a Chiddush. But 
I, what I didn't count on is that there was a cop waiting for me, right, like a state trooper, which you really don't want to ever meet a state trooper any time. And he was like, mamish, right behind. I was on the ramp, and he was right there, and he saw the whole thing. He saw me like going like sort of like this on, a, on an interstate highway. So um, he, of course, puts on his blinkers, and he pulls me over on the ramp, the side. And, uh, and all these buses with thousands of from kids, Hasidish kids or whatever, were passing by, and like, their, window, their noses were scrunched against the window, like looking at me like, what's, like what, what's this guy's problem? Like how did he manage to get pulled over on the way to his CMHS? So anyway, he was a very sweet cop. He, it turned, I thought for sure he was going to give me like $1,000 worth of tickets. And he says, you know, did you see what you did? You, you went across the whole interstate, like, you know, how, like, what, you know. I said, well, you know, I don't know, you know, we have to get there, we're in a rush, we're, you know, CMHS, finish the Talmud. He said, uh, and he said, license registration, said, please, we have, to, we have to get there. And he took my license registration, he came back with what seems an eternity. And uh, he says, all right, enjoy the evening. I'm not gonna, you're lucky I'm not going to give you a ticket tonight. Enjoy the evening. Like, not much a, a tzaddik, this guy. He, was a very, he looked sweet also. And um, that was my story getting into the CMHS. But it was pouring, pouring, pouring. And as soon as like, it was about to start, all of a sudden, all the rain stopped. The clouds like parted. And it was like a beautiful summer night with a blue sky. You could see, look at the, look at the sky. Like the sky was mamish blue, blue, like the bluest of blue. And it was like perfect until the Simashas was over and then it started pouring again. But mamish like it's left, Hashem like blew away the clouds. He like blew away all the clouds and, uh, and it ended up being a glorious night. It was beautiful. The last Simashas I honestly did not enjoy as much because it was ice cold. Was anyone by the last CMHS? You're smart. Were you there? You were outside the whole time? Yeah. It was freezing, right? It was frigid. It was like, like crazy. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it so much, but every, I guess you have to alternate. In the old days, they always had it indoors, so it didn't matter. It was a smaller crowd, so they did it in Madison Square Garden or Continental Arena. But um, now that they started doing it to accommodate 90, 100,000 people, they have to do it in... They have to do it in, uh, in an open field in MetLife Stadium, and that's what, that's what happened. So, you know, so in the summer, it's beautiful. So every seven and a half years, you're either going to be summer, winter, summer, winter. So the summer was beautiful. This last one, I did not really get so much appreciation from. This uh, picture, this picture um, is actually not one picture. It looks like it's one Looks like it's one big picture, right? What's the big deal? Somebody took a snapped a picture, and, but you can't get such clarity like with one picture. Guess how many pictures this actually is? What? Four, right? Four. It was seventy individual shots that the photographer stitched together. He wanted to give like a clear, like this could be blown up into like poster size, and you'd be able to actually see people's faces because. It's so many individual shots, and he somehow was able to, um, to, to fix it. Let me see if you... I'm going to give out the book now, and I want to see who can hop a proof to the fact that it wasn't just one big picture, but that it was multiple pictures. Don't say it until...